Father, we thank you for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, for the peace of God, which gives us security in this uncertain world, for the faith which you have instilled in our hearts to keep us focused on the truth of the living God. Father, we pray that you will be present here with us this morning, that you will bring the ability of each of us to focus on what you are saying to our hearts. Because we know your word is living, it is living and powerful, and its purpose is to cut into the very center of our being and reveal to us who we are and to cause us to then turn to, to God to be our strength and our shield. Father, we ask you to guide us in our study this morning. We ask you to bless in every class uh, throughout this campus today, uh, from the youngest children to the adults, and uh, in the service which is happening at the same time too, that you will be honored and glorified, and we'll give you that praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Exodus, the 11th chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus 11, I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that each man ask his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as there shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. As we noted last week as we began looking at this particular brief chapter, in verses 4 to 8 of this uh, passage, we have a record of Moses' final words to Pharaoh and, in effect, God's final words to Pharaoh. And it's a really simple statement that God makes here through Moses to Pharaoh. It's a proclamation of judgment. The firstborn in all Egyptian households will die at midnight, as well as the firstborn of all the cattle in the land of Egypt. And it's interesting that God does not give Moses the word to say, 
and then say to Pharaoh, well, if you will do this, it won't happen. There, there is no option given at all. No alternatives. This is the proclamation. This is going to happen, and there is nothing that will hinder the transpiration of this event. After delivering the proclamation of doom, I don't know if you can picture Moses, but he turned on his heel and strode right straight out from the throne room as he had been speaking to Pharaoh, and the scripture says, in hot anger. Why was Moses so bent out of shape here? Why was Moses so angry? Well, of course, God had already told him that you're going to say these words and Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. It isn't going to change Pharaoh one whit at all. And, of course, he has done this many, many times already. And he's performed great miracles in the sight of Pharaoh and of his other, you know, his, his magicians and so forth, the other people in the court. And it hasn't changed at least Pharaoh's heart at all. Moses, I think, was angry because he was frustrated with Pharaoh's refusal to yield to the obviously sovereign God. I mean, God has proven himself over and over and over again. And he has made fools out of the magicians and out of the gods of Egypt who obviously aren't gods. Pharaoh himself, who's supposed to be a god, is not able to deal with the issue, so how is it he's so blind that he will not submit to the sovereign God? And then Moses is further distressed by the fact that Pharaoh's willing to sacrifice his nation on the altar to his pride. I think Moses, as he walked through the streets, he saw the little children of the Egyptians running around, and he had compassion on these. And to know that all of this disaster was brought on the land would continue to be brought on the land because of one man's arrogance and one man's pride. Of course, the whole nation of Egypt was a land committed to the service of, of pagan deities, of demonic spirits. But still, many of the Egyptians certainly were beginning to get the message as time passed. And as Moses says in this passage, some of Pharaoh's own servants are going to come to Moses and beg him to leave the land. As we turn to chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, we're going to be studying in that chapter one of the most important events recorded in the entire Old Testament. We'll be looking at the institution of the Passover. If we think back to the first encounter between Moses and Pharaoh, when God, through Moses, turned the river Nile into blood, and then we think ahead to an event which hasn't yet transpired, and that is the destruction of the army of Egypt, in the Red Sea, we have bracketed by those two events the rebirth of a nation. We remember, I think, that in Genesis we were told that Jacob went down into Egypt with his clan, 70 strong. And during the course of the subsequent 400 and some odd years, that 70 had multiplied into a nation of two and a half million people, apparently, or approximately. The birth of that nation as God's people had occurred many, many centuries before when God had appeared to Abraham. 
And God, in, in subsequent uh, events, which are recorded in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, uh, keeps, uh, kept repeating the covenant that he had made with Abraham, beginning in that very, uh, you know, kind of a interesting account there at the first part of chapter 12 in Genesis. And that particular promise, that covenant, which, is, which marks the birth of Israel, the birth of God's nation, was renewed to Isaac, and it was renewed to Jacob. But the family now moved into Egypt, and the family has been in Egypt for 400 years. And the covenant has apparently been all but lost uh, in the minds and the hearts of the Israelis as they have settled into the routine of being slaves in this foreign land and building the walls and building the temples and building whatever it is the Egyptians had them building and surviving there in Egypt. And, and apparently they had all but lost their hope of the promised land. So as a result, they had to be born again as we might speak of it. There had to be a rebirth in the hearts of these people of the original covenant, the vision that God had given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the vision of a promised land, the vision of being a called people through whom Messiah would one day come. They had groaned, of course, and moaned there in Egypt, and they had served in slavery, and certainly many of them had thought, oh, to be out of this land, oh, to be away from this slavery. But God knew that the Israelites would never have left the security of that land on their own to go venturing out into a desert for some promised land that none of them had ever seen. And you have to remember, in those days, they didn't have the concept of geography that we have today. And, and to them, Palestine was as good as half a world away, even though they probably had some knowledge of it through travelers that had moved back and forth through the area. But God knew that they would never have accepted the challenge to leave even slavery behind and, and to go the hard way through the desert to, to come to the promised land and to face the challenge of conquering that land if it were not for the birth process or the rebirth process that we read about here in the book of Exodus. It was a hard process. It's a painful process. But there is no easy way into the service of God. Because if we kind of slip easily into the service of God, we can just slip right back out too. Because birth is not an easy process. The picture, I think as we look at this, should be clear. And that's the picture that we see in John 3, 3, where Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's really a profound statement when you think about it, because it really eliminates virtually all other attempts to attain to, to, attain to eternal life. We, you and I, have got to be freed from bondage also. We've got to be freed from slavery. Slavery to sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which holds us in tight bondage unless we are born again. And it takes this birth process in order for us to begin the journey to follow God by faith to our promised land, 
Our promised land, of course, is, is heaven. And that's the ultimate promised land also for Israel. But they had an interim promised land. And you and I do too. We're in it right now. The fellowship of the living God in the, uh, the koinonia, the fellowship of the believers. And God gives us that blessing uh, here and now as a kind of a little foretaste of what is to come. But you and I have been delivered from the bondage to sin through the atoning blood of Christ. It is that blood which delivers us from our bondage. It is by that blood that we are born again. And of course, that's not new to any of us here today, I know. But we need to see the picture together with Israel. Because the Israelites also have to be born again. Now, they aren't born again by understanding the death of Christ, but they are born again by a similar experience. They're being delivered from bondage in Egypt, which symbolized the world, the, de uh, the uh, you know, world and uh, sin, devil, all of those things which bind us today. And then the rebirth comes through the blood of the Passover lamb, which we'll be looking at here in this particular passage. So as we study the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, what we are seeing is a profound Old Testament illustration of the wonderful New Testament truth of Christ's redeeming atoning death. So let's look at the first six verses to begin with of Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. The Israelites have been in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. And in the process of that 400 year period, they have maintained some degree of, of their spiritual and ethnic cultural integrity but it has been heavily impacted from the Egyptian culture. And one of the things, of course, which they adopted over the course of the years was the Egyptian calendar. And so they were functioning according to the calendar of the land in which they lived. And that calendar was based on the rise and the fall of the Nile River in conjunction with, of course, the passage of the sun and the moon and the constellations which make up the zodiac. And all of this together uh, enabled the Egyptians to have their particular calendar of that time. God, in bringing about the separation of Israel from Egypt, wanted them to have total separation in even their calendar. 
giving them a new calendar, and that is the calendar that we have read about in this particular passage. They were to begin their year with the month in which God brought about the Passover sacrifice. The month that they would exit the land of Egypt, or at least begin that exodus. This was to be the first month of the year to them. The, you know, their, quote, January, if you will. So what God was saying to Israel was, we, I don't want you to have a calendar that is primarily focused on natural phenomena, nor one that's based primarily on human tradition, but one that is focused on the grace and the mercy of your sovereign God. And every year you'll be reminded, because the new year begins with the atoning sacrifice at the time of Passover. We won't turn to the book of Esther, but if you were to turn to the book of Esther, you will be told that the first year of the, of the first month of the Jewish calendar now was the month Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. And it would go through a whole series of months to the 12th month, 12th month, which would be the month Adar. So Passover was to be made, the Passover celebration, the Passover sacrifice, was to be made on the 14th day at the evening, right at sunset of the 14th day of Nisan, as it moved into the 15th day. And of course, we've all studied and, and, and understand the difference in the way the day uh, for the early Hebrews went, and, and still, amongst the practicing Jews today, still goes. Sunset. When the sun sets, the new day begins. That's midnight, if you like. Only it's not midnight, of course, obviously. But uh, to th their day begins at sunset and goes around to the next sunset. Whereas, of course, we begin at midnight and go through to the other midnight for whatever reason. You know, there's no particular good reason for that, except we like things to happen when we're asleep that make bigger changes, you know, so we don't have to suffer from that uh, change. You know, one of the things that... I is, is real confusing for many of us at times is to think about the fact that all you have to do when you're going towards the uh, west is cross the international dateline and you are in another day. It doesn't matter when you cross that international dateline through the course of a 24-hour period. When you cross that line, you are in the next day automatically. And uh, I've always thought, you know, if you kept going that direction... <laughs> <laughs> You could age quickly or go the other way, <laughs> turn the clock back, but it doesn't work that way, obviously. Otherwise, those guys going around in the satellites up there would have uh, changed one way or the other, I suppose. But uh, beginning at sunset, they were to sacrifice the lamb at sunset as the day made the transition from the 14th to the 15th the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Now, according to our calendar, that would put it somewhere in the neighborhood of the 1st of April. So, you know, kind of like the beginning of, of spring. Now, our calendar, the calendar that you and I have to suffer with all the time, is based on the old Roman calendar that was originally established by Julius Caesar in the first century before Christ. 
Now that calendar has gone through several modifications down through the centuries, but basically its original form is fairly, uh, pretty much still intact. And particularly to the point that the new year for us begins with January. Now January, the, the name comes from a Roman god. That god's name was Janus, J-A-N-U-S. And he was the god of beginnings and endings. He was the god that they stuck up at main entrances into buildings because he was the god of entrances and exits. You know, they had gods for everything, you know. Kind of like you go around and it's kind of a spiritism uh, made into a polytheistic uh, faith that the Romans followed and they had gods for everything. You know, gods of the household and gods of the streetways and god of the marketplace and god of whatever. Spend your whole life trying to appease all these gods. Uh, so you live in constant fear, you know. Which is characteristic all over the world, by the way, in, in virtually any pagan society. But uh, we still carry this with us, you know. It's, I mean, just like March is named for the Roman god Mars, you know. And all the way through the year, we find this Roman impact. Now, January was set to begin when the Roman process of Saturnalia was over with. That's the worship that went, you know, was focused on the god Saturn, but had to do with uh, the end or, or the, uh, the winter solstice. Okay, January 21st, the winter solstice, uh, the shortest day in the year. And as soon as you pass that, you're starting back now with the sun getting a little higher in the sky every day. And, of course, the longer days coming. And so we carry that over into our particular world today. But the Israelites were not to have that. They were to have a calendar based on what God had done for them. The last six plagues that we studied, we discovered that Israel was automatically exempted from the curse of the plague, whatever it was. Even to the place, as we noted last week, where although the whole land of Egypt was in darkness, in the land of Goshen, they had light. But now as we come to this final plague, Israel is not going to be automatically exempted. God does say that in the land of Goshen, not even a dog will bark against man or animal, but Israel, in order to experience that, must demonstrate faith and obedience. It was time for Israel to become actively involved by faith in what God was doing. For the most part, they'd been just standing there watching all this happen, you know, and seeing what God was doing and exempting them from the plague that swept over Egypt. But now... It was time for them to exhibit an active faith. It was time for them to learn the importance of obedience to the Word of God. If God says it, you do it, because if you don't do it, you pay the price. It was time for Israel to understand the supreme importance of a substitutionary sacrifice in this new birth process. As Israel is being born again, as it were, through the Passover and through the Exodus, they had to understand the necessity of a substitutionary sacrifice. Because without that understanding, they would never be able to pick up on the concept of a Messiah, especially the Messiah that is the Messiah of this book, the, the Bible. 
How can they understand this, the necessity of a Messiah dying for their sin if they don't even understand the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice to begin with? On the 10th of the month, Nisan, a lamb was to be selected by each family. And the scripture says that if a family was too small to consume a lamb, they were to get their nearest neighbor, probably another small family, and together they were to sacrifice a lamb and they were to divide it amongst all the people present. The scripture makes it very clear what the requirements were. The lamb was to be a male, the lamb was to be a year of age, and the lamb was to be unblemished. Now, the scripture allows for the possibility of the use of a baby goat, a kid, in the place of a lamb. So one or the other was, uh, either one was acceptable. Now, the lamb was to be selected on the 10th of Nisan, but it was not to be slain until the very last moment on the 14th of Nisan, nearly four days later. Why? Why should they select the animal so soon? Why don't they just go out the day, the 14th of Nisan, and find the animal and bring it in and slaughter it? Why should they have this animal selected and isolated and probably dwelling right in their house with them four days ahead of time? Well, I think the answer is at least twofold. One is to be able to look at the animal carefully through the four, course of the four days, make sure it is not sick, and to make sure that it has no blemish of any kind. You know, it doesn't have a limp and doesn't have a cocked ear or, a, you know, something wrong with the thing. It was supposed to be as perfect as was possible. But I think more importantly was the second reason, and that was they were to become attached to the animal. There was to develop an emotional relationship between them and this little lamb. And the reason was not because God is a sadist, because he is not. As we'll be reading a little bit later in Hebrews, God, it, it, the scripture says, God was not delighted in the blood of all those animals. He took no delight in that. But the reason was so that Israel would understand the horribleness of sin and the high cost of disobedience. One of the hardest things we have to deal with, even as Christians, is a flippant attitude towards sin. It's easy to develop, especially if we hold to the hardline Calvinistic view that once saved, always saved, as some have uh, converted that concept into, so that it doesn't really matter what you do, you're always going to be in like, I won't use that phrase because I was told it was not a good one to use, you're always going to be you know, able to get in without any problem. But we need to understand how horrible sin is, and they needed to understand how horrible sin is. I mean, God can't look on sin. And we'll note in a few minutes how that even impacted Jesus himself. The lesson would be particularly driven home to the little children. Because the little children would, ad would have a greater emotional attachment to the lamb than the adults, because the adults really knew what was going to happen. Kids don't quite get the point, you know, often. And for them, they would learn, therefore, at an early age, the severe consequences of sin. I think today we have a tendency to think that children can't handle tough things. And therefore, we shield them from some things that maybe they shouldn't be shielded from, of the realities of life and of sin. 
But these kids were exposed to it from the time they were very, very small. Verse 7 of Exodus 12. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs and all its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left of it until the morning, you shall burn with fire. Passage tells us that the blood of the sacrifice was to be caught in a basin. The Hebrew word here can apply to a literal bull, but it also can apply and is applied in the early part of Scripture to the uh, trench that was built in front of the houses in Egypt in those days so that when it rained, the water didn't just run right into the house. There was a little trench that picked up the water and ran it away from the door. And so it may have been that they sacrificed the animal at the doorway and then were to collect it, or it did collect in this basin. But whatever the case was, they were to select or to collect some of the blood of the animal, and then they were to spread it on the two doorposts of their entranceway and on the lentil over the top. And they were to smear the blood all over the doorway of the house. Now we can ask why. You know, why would God want such a messy thing to be done? You know, to us it seems kind of yucky. But, but God did it, of course, as a very, very clear reminder of what was happening here. The, uh, all of us, particularly those of us who are in education, come to realize that people learn from different processes. And one way by which we learn is doing hands-on things. And by taking a branch of the hyssop and dipping it into the blood and smearing it, you're, you know, you're actively doing something which reinforces the teaching that's coming through. And, of course, the children are going to say, why are you doing this, Daddy? You know? And the father would have an opportunity to explain the meaning of a sacrifice, of a substitutionary sacrifice, the necessity of blood being shed. Scripture tells us it was to be spread with the use of hyssop. Now, what we do know about hyssop was that it was some kind of a herb that was used in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, all through that area. Other passages talk about it having a sweet-smelling aroma. It was obviously a leafy plant of some kind, which could substitute for a paintbrush, I guess you could say, in, in putting the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts. We don't know what the plant is today. There is a plant called hyssop in the uh, modern botanical uh, collection, but it is not a plant that grows in the Near East. Many have tried to guess at what this particular plant was, and, and most come up with majorum as a probable plant uh, that was originally hyssop, because that does grow throughout the Near East today and is a small, low-growing herb with the correct leafy qualities and aromatic qualities and so forth that hyssop had to possess. Most of us, I think, are familiar with the phrase in the psalm, that Psalm 51, that David uses having to do with hyssop, where he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. David, of course, in that 
penitential psalm is not saying that there's something about hyssop which is cleansing of the soul. He's referring back to, to the Passover event when it was the hyssop which put the blood on the doorpost. Cleanse me with, purify me with hyssop. Use that, that brush which coats the blood, the atoning blood, upon my heart and upon my soul. Once the blood was spread on the door, Scripture says no one was to exit that house until sunrise. They were all to be in that house because the angel of the Lord was going to pass over Egypt. And wherever he saw the blood, he would not strike. It's the symbolism of this passage, I think, which is important for us to understand today. The lamb was sacrificed not because the literal physical blood of that particular lamb or all of those lambs could atone for sin, but because that blood was a picture or a symbol of the blood which could atone from sin and would in the death of the Messiah, the Lamb of God. God is about to, when Israel goes into the wilderness and goes to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up and receives the word of the Lord, uh, God is going to institute a whole sacrificial system. And of course it's explained for us in great detail in the book of Leviticus. And you read through there about the many sacrifices which were to be made and the occasions on which they're to be made. And it, you know, it's real troublesome to read through that in many ways. And think of all the blood it had to be shed. And the constant awareness people had to have of where they were in that uh, system at any particular moment in time. Uh, there would not only be lambs and kids, baby goats that would be slain, but bulls and calves and doves and pigeons. All of these would be part of the sacrificial system. Why? The point is the same as it is here. So that the people would be aware continuously of the high cost of sin, of the vileness of sin, of the extremity of sin. We have so-called Protestant churches today that have taken the blood out of everything because they think the idea of blood is gross and just doesn't behoove us to believe in a God who requires blood. They want some kind of a God who is sophisticated and doesn't go along with this bloody evangelical religion. But to do that, you have to throw out Scripture. You have to throw out the whole meaning of the Old Testament as far as the uh, sacrificial system was concerned. And you have to totally ignore, of course, the real reason that Jesus Christ came. Those same denominations, of course, make Jesus Christ into nothing but a wonderful teacher, just a, you know, a, a good guy, kind of the equivalent of Buddha and Muhammad and Lao Tzu and, and others. But the scripture makes it very, very clear that the blood of these animals was to remind people that sin was intolerable in the eyes of God. And this blood, these sacrifices, helped us, helped them, to come to a place of understanding of the need of a permanent substitutionary atonement that would come through Messiah. Oh, the enemy would warp their understanding of Messiah and they would come up with some other view of Messiah which was so 
pervasive that even at the time when Jesus was teaching his disciples, they didn't fully understand until Pentecost the whole meaning of Jesus' life and ministry and his death and resurrection. But scripture explains it beautifully to us in light of the Passover and other sacrificial system. If we could turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow, that is a symbol of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. If in the Passover practice they all were cleansed from sin, why bother having another sacrifice? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, this is of course speaking of Christ, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And after saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected, that, that means we have that eternal standing, for all time, those who are sanctified, and, and the meaning there of that word is are being sanctified in the process of being made holy in this life. So obviously, as the Hebrew, author of the Hebrews makes it clear to us, the, the whole idea behind the Passover sacrifice and the whole sacrificial system was to prepare people for the need of a Messiah who would die and whose blood would atone forever, would fulfill the picture given in the Old Testament system. Now the scripture tells us in the passage that we read that they were to select the lamb ahead of time. What about Jesus? Now some people at times, I think, have the idea that God was going along here, you know, and he had established plan A, and it didn't seem like plan A was working out so well. So he decided to go with plan B. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
we read that God only had one plan. In verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He who was foreordained from before the foundation of the world. I mean, God, God, this is hard to get. Hard for us to understand. Why would God create a world knowing that sin's going to enter this world and his son's going to have to die to pay for that sin? Now, if I were God, I'd say, scratch that plan. I will go for a different plan. But God didn't. So it wasn't like the sacrificial system was going along and God said, you know, I'm tired of this system. There's got to be another way to do this. Not at all. It was a clear, clear picture. For those who truly believed, to understand, I mean, ask, you probably have asked this question, how is it that Peter, at Pentecost, was able to go out the street and preach a sermon and 3,000 people believed? Now, the Holy Spirit was there in power, yes. But, but God works through what we know. God works through our minds, works through who we are. And so what happened was God quickened the minds of those who would hear to understand the truth of the Passover lamb whom Christ became eternally. And suddenly it clicked in 3,000 minds and they believed at that particular moment. It was not for naught. That, that God built in this system. And, and I mean, and Paul tells us in Galatians that the whole law was our schoolmaster. It was our tutor that we might understand what Christ is all about. How would we understand, really, the New Testament without the Old? We couldn't, you know. It really, really wouldn't make sense to us, and it certainly wouldn't make any sense to any Jews. Of course, if they didn't have Old Testament, there probably wouldn't be any Jews, right? So, the scripture also tells us that the lamb was to be without spot or blemish, which pictured the fact that Christ as Messiah would be sinless. Let me just read the verse from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from the modernist view of a, of a Jesus who is just a good teacher. Another Buddha, if you will. You know, another Bodhisattva or some other kind of manifestation, you know, of the divine. No, because Jesus was without sin. And Scripture makes it so clear that there never has nor there never will be anyone else in that condition. We are all unrighteous. Not a single one of us is righteous in our own selves. But our righteousness comes through the righteous death of Christ.
What about the roasting of the lamb? We're told that they were to roast the lamb, they were to eat it, and anything they didn't eat, they were supposed to burn up into an ash before sunrise. And of course, I believe that the roasting of the lamb is a picture of the judgment fire of God. God must judge sin. God can't just say, oh, they sinned, that's too bad. I guess I'll just have to ignore it. God can't do that because one of God's attributes is justice. He is completely just. And if you're totally just, you can't ignore violations of justice. And so God requires judgment for sin. The sin of the world that Jesus bore on the cross had to be judged. And that judgment caused Jesus to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because, Scripture tells us, He became sin, saturated with sin of the world that came upon Him. Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 5 we read, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not that we might have it, but that we might become it. It's more than just a smearing of the blood on the outside. It's a penetrating to the very core of who we are. Christ was penetrated to the core with the sin of the world, saturated with it, so that we might become saturated with the righteousness of God, not being painted over, you know, just whitewashed. You know, Jesus called the, the Pharisees a bunch of whitewashed tombs because they looked good on the outside, but inside they were rotten. We have to be penetrated to the core by the righteousness of God so that there isn't any whitewash out there. We are on the inside what we look like on the outside. And that's the meaning of Christ's atoning death. The atonement of the Passover lamb didn't do that. It was just smeared on the outside. It was simply a picture. God must exact death as punishment for sin. That's his nature. But Jesus became sin. And by becoming sin, his death satisfied God's justice. As the lamb's death was substitutionary for the firstborn of Israel, so Christ's death is substitutionary for ours. Well, there are some other truths in here that I want to point out, but it will take too long today. So the, about the bones, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, uh, we'll talk about those next time as we begin class. There's a passage, let me read it to you. You all know it well. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And I think in the light of the tragedy of yesterday with the assassination of the Prime Minister of Israel, we need to be praying maybe more than ever before for Israel for the peace of Jerusalem, whatever that may mean. I know that, you know, we're filled up enough with understanding of the end times and the great tragedies and disasters that are coming. We might say, why bother praying for the peace of Jerusalem when all this destruction is coming? But the scripture says to us 
May they prosper who love you. We need to pray for peace, shalom, in Jerusalem, and in the hearts of all believers.